Well, the year was 1992. Some of you I know were probably not even around then, but uh, I was 13 years old. And I was sitting in a gym class at a junior high in Hillsboro, Oregon. And if you were around that year, one of the biggest headlines that was going across the newspaper, yes, the newspaper, it still existed then, uh, was something called Measure 9. It was a ballot measure proposed by a political group trying to amend the Oregon State Constitution using language surrounding the topic of sexual orientation. Now, even as a junior high student, I was probably more into politics um, and things going on in the world than many of my peers. But I had this situation kind of etched in my brain because it was so odd to me. I still remember sitting there on the floor, crisscross applesauce in my PE uniform, as one of my peers was arguing from the Bible, supposedly, and another one of my peers was arguing from the Bible, but they were arguing at each other. One very vehemently stated his opinion on same-sex relationships using Bible verses out of Leviticus and said that God viewed same-sex relationships as an abomination. And the other responded just as vehemently with a statement that likewise seemed to be from the Bible that went something like this. Well, the Bible also says and commands that you are not to wear two different types of material in your clothing. And he looked at my other friend there, and he said, but here you are, sinning against God's commands. Now, I was part of a, a home that stated that we were Christian, that talked about being Christian, but I was so confused in this moment, as many people are when it comes to this topic. I had very little understanding of the Bible itself, and so I remember sitting there confused. Both of them presented their points from Bible verses. Both were equally assured and vehement in their interpretation. And I bring that story up to you because I stand here today with you on a Sunday morning, 27 years later, about to enter into a section of Deuteronomy that deals with some of these types of seemingly bizarre and somewhat obtuse laws, and I'm humbled to be pondering the same thing as my 13-year-old self. Most of me, like you, desires to be obedient to the wonderful God we serve, and so I want to uphold these ancient laws. A part of me, like many of you, is also perplexed and confused by the Christian response to take some of the laws and leave others. For example, from our text today, why is it that conservative Christianity would keep the law that says that it is not okay to dress in the clothing of the opposite gender, cross-dressing? Why is that not okay? And yet, at the same time, why don't we obey the verse a couple of verses later that says that we should avoid combining two types of material in our clothing? It's a very good question. And when the world brings it to us, we should be ready with an answer. And part of me, like you, wishes that we were just in the Gospel of Mark and not having to deal with this at all. I asked a number of people if they wanted to fill in for me today in talking about cross-dressing, and they said that they didn't want to. I don't understand why. But as we've seen in Deuteronomy over the seven months we've been in it, it gives us a basis of understanding of God's character and his heart. And it gives us an understanding of what our heart should then be as we personify him to the world, who we are to be as God's chosen people. And if we are to be a people that walk out into a broken and hurting world, we should probably understand these laws and what the underlying principle is. And that we need to understand why, to so many, it may seem hypocritical to take one and leave the other. And I can't even begin to describe the number of conversations I've had over the years with people who want to believe in Christ but are very much stuck and confused by the inability of the, the church to address the seeming paradoxes of Scripture. 
I've watched other Christians just try and brush past them, and yet those who want to believe in Christ are sitting there begging for an answer as to why there are seeming paradoxes in Scripture. And so this morning, to encourage you in your faith, to help give you stability in your own reading of Scripture, and to give you confidence in the midst of evangelizing a lost and dying world, I want to take on some of these paradoxes. I want to ask the question, why do we hold on to some commands and completely dismiss others? And some of the laws we will look at today will be simple enough to understand and simple enough to apply, but others will not be so easy. And so I've titled today's teaching in Deuteronomy 22, I've titled the teaching, Wrestling with the Paradoxes of Scripture. Wrestling with the Paradoxes of Scripture. It's hard for me when I hear really well-meaning pastors who I love dearly say things like, oh, the Bible doesn't have any paradoxes. The Bible doesn't have any any um, uh, comments that seem to go against itself. Guys, it's full of them. It really is. And that doesn't mean it's errant. It just means that we have to understand how to read it. But to say those kinds of things, it's, it's obtuse to the world who looks at it and says, no, actually it does. It does have all sorts of contradictory statements. And we need to admit that, that it does. But again, we also need to state very clearly that that doesn't mean it's errant. And that doesn't mean that there were problems in the writing of it. We just need to understand how to read it. And if you don't know what a paradox is, it's basically a word that means a seemingly contradictory statement that when investigated proves to be well-founded. And that's why we can say that the Bible is indeed full of paradoxes because they might seem incongruent, but they absolutely, when investigated, prove to be well-founded. So let's begin by taking them one at a time. So we're in the section of Deuteronomy dealing with individual civic laws there in chapter 22. And the first section we will look at right now is pretty easy to understand. You can write this down as the first point. These are going to be various laws to promote a selfless and considerate people. Various laws to promote a selfless and considerate people. Take a look there in verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again." Here we have a very basic definition of a considerate person. <laughs> but a considerate person is actually hard to find these days. I remember Kelly and I, I can't remember what trip it was, but we were going through the airport and I'd had my beanie stuck in the back pocket of my pants and we'd walk through the airport and it had fallen out and this gentleman had literally chased us through almost the entire airport. Like it wasn't like five feet back. He'd gone like around major corners, right? And he finally got a hold of my arm and he said, hey, you dropped your beanie. And I remember being shocked. Like, I didn't even think it was that important. And yet this guy chased me down to give it to me. Considerate people are hard to find in today's society. If someone uh, cares what's happening to their brother, people are shocked about it. And the specific application here is dealing with this animal, which was a part of a neighbor's wealth, and also his provision in farming. This was a person's livelihood. And the emphasis here is that when you see your neighbor... When you see them uh, or something that they've lost, their farm animal wandering or hurting, you jump in to help. And this is so contrary to our society that often asks, 
How will it benefit me if I help? I think oftentimes when we see people hurting, uh, we look at life, reality, as if it's our social media feed. We can just simply scroll past it and go on to something else that gets, catches our attention. I was talking to someone recently who was struggling with everyone in their circle of influence and how often those people are on their phones. And they were expressing to me that it seems as if everyone is so me-focused, they don't even acknowledge one another. And this person was expressing it to me in light of feeling isolated and alone. And when I probed a bit deeper into what the solution would be, the person said to me, I just wish we lived in a world where people actually cared what happened to one another. Isn't that wisdom? I just wish that we lived in a world where people actually cared what happened to one another. That is ripe ground for the kindness of Christ to be shown. I think that's exactly what God is calling his people to hear in this law. As Christians, we are called to care for one another, for our neighbors, for our enemies, even if it is hard, especially because it's hard. I find it so easy to want to get away from all the people into my own personal sanctuary, but one of the main ways we show people that we are Christian is by being people that care about the other, the other person. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Go with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You guys are probably very familiar with this. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? See, Jesus was even wrestling with that with his people. How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live, meaning eternally. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story. I love it when he does this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. He just listed two of the most religiously-minded people in all of the Israelite people, and yet they were ones that walked by. But then he says, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, if anybody was going to walk by this, this Jew on the road, it was going to be a Samaritan, uh, their seeming enemies, the person who, it really wasn't right socio, uh, socially for him to come over and help. And yet, it says, he went to him. He had compassion. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Guys, how inconvenient was this for this person? Probably massively inconvenient. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It was the person that was the farthest from the one hurt, that had the least connection or spiritual motivation, that was the one that helped the neighbor that was hurting. And man, this is God's heart, isn't it? It is by the simple act of caring that we can often show God's heart for the other that may not know him. Brother or sister, you may not be theologically inclined you may not know the big words. 
You may not know the order of the books in the Bible, especially in those pesky minor prophets. You may not have all this academic knowledge, but what you do have is the heart of Jesus by way of the Holy Spirit. And so you are completely and utterly equipped to testify to the goodness of Jesus by the kindness you have for people around you. It's an amazing thing. Even the brand new believer on day one has within him everything he needs in order to show the kindness of Christ that draws men to repentance. That kindness, that care, it's a simple act of caring that we can often show God's heart. I love this story related by a commentator named Ajith Fernando in his commentary on Deuteronomy. He says, A Christian missionary and companions in Africa were traveling on a rough road when their vehicle got stuck. Unable to get the vehicle out of the mud, they hailed a vehicle that was passing by to get help. Well, those in the vehicle ignored their request and went along merrily. And they finally got their vehicle out of the mud and proceeded with the journey. Sometime later, they encountered that same vehicle that ignored their requests for help when they were stuck on the road. The driver next to Ajith said, uh, or next to the missionary said, ah, here's our chance to get even with these rascals. But the missionary told the driver to stop and proceeded to help those people. Now, when they were driving away after helping them, the driver of the vehicle leaned over and told the missionary, now I see the difference between my religion and yours. We try to repay evil for evil. You return evil for good. God's people are those who, regardless of the cost or the discomfort, regardless of the reciprocation, are considerate and care about the people around them. Whenever possible, we do not speed past, but we help so that we can, in the words of Deuteronomy, lift up our neighbors again. Church, is there someone in your life that needs lifting up? Is there someone in your home that needs some consideration? Someone in your workplace? Maybe the Lord has you in their life simply to show the kindness of Christ. It may not be the right time to give them the four spiritual laws, but it is the time to show them consideration and kindness. Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy. So we see this law that brings about a considerate people. Now we're going to skip over Deuteronomy 22.5 and come back to it in a minute, not because I'm not going to talk about it, but because I want you to see something here. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 8. Or, uh, yeah, verse 6 through 7. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. Here we have a very interesting statement on the practices of environmental sustainability. Now, they would never have labeled it that. That's our terminology in today's age. But this is very similar to the laws back in chapter 20, if you remember, about don't cut down the fruit-bearing trees when you go to make siege uh, or war against a city. Except here we have sustainability among animals that provide food. And this isn't just PETA showing up and saying, oh, don't hurt the animals, because they are taking some of the animals, but they're very clear. If the law were stated uh, to leave the chicks and take the mother, the chicks would die. They would not be able to take care of themselves. And if the law were stated in a way to take all of them, there would be no further benefit for anyone. And so this sustainability practice is put in place so that the people can care for one another in the food that's provided. When we were down in Haiti a couple of years ago, we sent Pastor Laveau some money to purchase chickens and build a chicken coop. And when we went to see him, those chickens weren't around anymore. And so we had this long discussion. 
And what he told us was the hard thing to teach the, the Haitian people who are starving is that if they leave the chicken alone and take the eggs only, then many people can be fed a little bit. But if you're starving, you don't want to be fed a little bit. You want more, and so you eat the chickens. Well, the problem is only so many people can be fed by chickens. And so it was this very obvious example of the fact that less immediate gratification led to more people being sustained over the long haul. God's people are to be a people that think about the benefit for all, not just the benefit for me. Man, this rubs raw against our American ideology, doesn't it? The simple act of leaving food in an agape meal, not taking as much as you might like so that everyone else can have some, it speaks to an ideology and a worldview that shows that we are a different people. I know that seems like a small thing. But living a life for the benefit of all. Now, this doesn't mean we should never think of ourselves. We should never go after things that we want. The Lord wants us to prosper in this life. But the reality is, is that how we go about doing it shows who we are. It's so very easy to fall into the trap of only thinking about ourselves and how life affects me. Lastly, we see here in Deuteronomy 22.8, one more seemingly odd law scattered in here, but it goes along in the same lines of, considering, of being a considerate people. Verse 8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So those of you who have just built a new house, have you built your parapet? I probably am not even pronouncing that correctly. In those days, in the ancient Near East, you had basically this box, and it was so warm inside the building without air conditioning, most people would go up in the evening time to sit on their roof. And so the idea of being on a roof without any walls around it was not a great idea, especially if you have kids. When we built the church building, the big joke was that the uh, half wall up on the mezzanine could hold uh, elephants back because it was so strong and so high. Even I have a hard time kind of looking over it to see who's down in the foyer when you come in. But the reality is we wanted to do that to be safe because we knew we'd have youth group up there. We knew we'd have elephants up on the mezzanine. And so the reality was that we wanted to care for them. And so this law makes the owner of the house responsible for caring for other people around them and that they would be held at fault if faulty building practices were used. Uh, think about so many different ghettos across the United States where lawsuits come up because they fall down when people don't use good building practices because they're trying to save a buck. Um, the reality is, is this is asking for people to be considerate not just of themselves and the ability to save money, but of other people and how their actions might affect others. We have so lost this in our culture. How might my actions affect everyone else? Now, it's tough in this society to be considerate because we don't often want to because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And I've met so many Christians, and I myself sit in the boat sometimes, of I'm so tired of getting taken advantage of. I don't like being considerate because no one else is. The problem with that is that's the very reason we're here. If we care for the other and are considerate of them, I guarantee you that when the time is right for you to speak to that person about your faith or invite them to church, you will have provided the backing to your words that may draw them to the Lord. The idea of even knowing someone's name and repeating it is huge in this society. Multiple times this week, I've heard other people talk about that, and my, I myself have heard it as well. When I go and I actually, because I'm not great with names, actually remember somebody's name or I've written it down, people are dumbfounded by that. Oh, you remembered my name? I, I matter to you? 
As Christians, these are basic things we can do to show that we are a selfless people, a considerate people. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think of someone in your life that you are around regularly that you might struggle with. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's even your spouse right now. And I want you to ask yourself, how might I be considerate of them this week? How might I step out of my comfort zone to show this person who grinds on me what it is to love them? And you might be surprised by showing them consideration. They might not expect it and they might respond in a way that is almost a bit shocked. But it opens up the door to a greater conversation. In this world today, to be a considerate and caring and selfless people, it will set us apart. Not just random acts of kindness, but kindness with a purpose. Kindness in order to draw men and women to repentance. We are set apart to be that selfless, considerate people, different from the world. And that's what the next small section of our text today discusses. We're going to see next, you can write this down, various laws to create a people set apart for ministry. Various laws to create a people set apart for ministry. Here we come to some laws uh, that again seem a little bit odd and obtuse. And they're the very laws, one of them, that were used by my classmate to retort the idea that any one Old Testament law should be upheld above others. So let's take a look there at verses 9 through 12. It says, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Verse 11, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. And then verse 12, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Now, how on earth are we supposed to apply these? Are we supposed to follow them? Is my cotton polyester uh, blend uh, an abomination to the Lord? Well, the Bible does command us here to not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. But it's even a paradox within the text itself. You have this command to not mix wool and linen, but here's the interesting part. Elsewhere in the Torah, the priests are actually commanded to wear a linen undergarment with a brightly colored vestment that was wool. The tabernacle coverings were actually a mixture of wool and linen, and even more interesting is the fact that archaeologists have found uh, tassels worn by first century Jews around Jesus' time that were, you guessed it, made of a mixture of wool and linen. Were they being sinful? Were they going against this even in the first century? Well, the reality is, is that there is a seeming paradox to anyone that knows that history or who finds these two seemingly contradictory texts. And then they even look at it and say, why do, why do you not follow verse 11, but you do say, verse 5, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, and that that stands. The point of these statements, though, was not because there is something, something inherently evil within oxen or donkeys or wool or linen. I knew wool was bad. It always makes me itch, right? No. Nor is it inherently evil to have either grapes or figs or whatever your fruit is. It's the point of God not wanting mixture between the people he had set apart and those he had not. 
These laws were given to remind the people of Israel that they were to be set apart. For example, in Isaiah chapter 5, Israel itself is called a vineyard of God and that thorns come in and grow amongst it. And that's when they're uh, pictured as being evil and distant from God. And so the idea of being a vineyard set apart with nothing else in the midst of it makes tons of sense to the Jew. They were to be a people set apart, holy people to a holy God. And the verse on tassels was simply to remind the people that they were to be a people of priests. The only other people that wore these tassels were the priests that would go into the tabernacle. And when choosing Israel, God told them that his goal was to make them a kingdom of priests, people that would act on behalf and minister on behalf of the people, being that go-between between God and the people. And so, for example, in Exodus 19.6, you have this statement that God makes to them. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, he tells to Moses. They were to be a kingdom of priests. Even though they had priests, all of them were supposed to be priests to the rest of the world and the nations that surrounded them. And Peter, when he took on speaking, the idea of speaking to the church, he used the same mentality. He says to the church in 1 Peter 2.9, you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And don't skirt past that second part too fast. We are a people for his own possession, meaning our lives are not our own. They were bought at a price. For what purpose? That you, each one of us, and collectively, might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's people are to remember their special status among the nations, not special because I'm special and people like me, but special because God chose us for a purpose. It's to keep that purpose in mind at the forefront of our, our minds. The most holy creator God has chosen us to be those who minister in the midst of the nations that surround us. And so we're reminded that we are to be set apart and different. Unfortunately, over the history of the church, many have seen this, this idea of being different as a call to isolation or a call to being different in odd ways or a call to even being openly conflictual with those who were not within the church. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to flee society. I've seen far too many Christians and even churches who, well, let's just get out of the city and go to the country and create our bubble. Let's just take our family away from all these bad people and create our bubble. In fact, what we are called to is to be in the midst of the people, ministering to them, drawing them to God, and pointing them to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are to be a people that have a different heart and motivation and lifestyle than those around us that do not know Christ. And in that, it is not just the movies we watch or the clothes we wear or things we do or do not say. Those things definitely do speak to whether or not we are Christians. But it's not just those. It is the way in which we treat people in the name of Jesus Christ, especially those who are seen as the most unlovable. How we treat the most unlovable of society actually speaks more to who we are if we're a kingdom of priests or not. And that brings us back to the verse we previously skipped over, Deuteronomy 22.5. Let's take a look at that now. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. 
Now, this verse instantly makes us a bit uncomfortable, so I have to make a joke about kilts, right? Where do kilts fit into this in order to lighten the mood? I used to have a kilt. Don't have it anymore. Kelly didn't like it very much, so I got rid of it. But the reality is, is what is this? Is this a cultural byproduct? What, what is this talking about? Put simply, this verse on the surface deals with the topic of cross-dressing or one who derives pleasure from what's called transvestitism or wearing clothes of the opposite gender. Now, how do we, as New Testament believers, deal with this verse? Because in our current culture, these are the verses that will offend many people around us. And they may even offend some of you sitting here today. People will look at this small section of Scripture and say, so you want to affirm the verse that says that cross-dressing is an abomination. That's a pretty heavy word. But you want to toss aside the verse that says you shouldn't wear two types of fabric. Others may respond and say vehemently, it's God's law, just state it as it is, and if a person doesn't like it, tough, it's on them. The solution is not for the church to avoid these passages or the topics they deal with. An omission of opinion will just make us seem apathetic to the concern of the people that are indeed offended by this. Neither do we want to state these scriptures plainly without an understanding of how they are heard because then we would be inconsiderate, uncaring, unloving. So what do we do? Well, we realize that the first two points of today's teaching and the verses that surround this lead us to how we are to minister to anyone who might fall into any of the categories that the Bible outlines as abominations. How are we supposed to minister to anyone that might fall into the grouping that's categorized here in verse 5 or any other grouping? And I would say simply this. As New Testament believers, we are set apart to minister, especially to those who are far from God as we once were. We are set apart to minister, especially to those who are far from God as we once were. I know that a lot of us have dreams and desires to be like Jonah and to walk into the middle of a people group or a community and say, repent. The wrath of God is at hand. But guys, I just have not seen a whole lot of success in that in 2019. Likewise, we're not supposed to apologize for what the Bible says. But the fact of the matter is, is if you paid attention to the news yesterday, you saw that across the country, across the world, there were pride uh, parades for people in the LGBTQ community. You also probably saw that in places like Detroit, there was violence of neo-Nazi groups coming in and trying to harm the people in those parades. And part of me just sits back and thinks, is this working for you yet, folks? <laughs> How on earth are we supposed to reach out to people who know that the church has text that we base our lives on that are against a lifestyle? Well, we have to admit that we live in a culture where gender lines are blurred farther than any culture since the Roman Empire, and maybe even beyond that. And so this law that says that cross-dressing and blurring gender lines is an abomination is hard to discuss. This is a hard topic. And so, as it was in the seventh grade for me, we're kind of stuck in a debate where one side of the argument reads this and says, people who fall in the category of questioning their gender are an abomination, and that's the end of it. And then the same topic comes up when dealing with homosexuality uh, that's referenced in Leviticus. But then the other side of the debate responds with, well, you're all hypocrites because you're picking and choosing what laws you want to follow. 
And it leaves us no further toward any resolution and no, no further towards drawing those that hold this opinion toward Christ. So again, what do we do? Well, I think in order to set the tone, we have to ask two simple questions. First, what does it mean that it is an abomination? And is God trying to carve out one group of people here to put an idea of evil just on them? And secondly, how should we react as believers to the fact that it is called an abomination? Well, first, let's cover why is it an abomination? Well, the word in the Hebrew for abomination here is to'avah. To'avah. And it means something that is abhorrent to God. And that's the unapologetic part. It says abomination, it means abomination. But then we have to ask why. Well, here's the interesting part. Over the course of the last 50 to 100 years, a lot of uh, people who I've discussed um, this topic with, who are from the LGBTQ community, they've said, well, the idea of abomination has been used as a, uh, a slur, a slight, uh, you know, uh, a way to um, harm people in our community. And I think I've seen that, that when you pull Leviticus and say, oh, homosexuality is an abomination, we're making a point and separating ourselves from people. But is that really the only time God uses abomination is to deal with non-heterosexual sexual norms? Well, it's actually used not at all to pick on any one people group. It's not used at all to abuse any one group of people, even though it's been abused to do that in the past. It's been used all throughout Scripture to talk about all sorts of things. And next week, we will take a look at the next section of Deuteronomy, which deals with the sexual ethic of God's chosen people and how gender roles and gender identity play into that. And I'm going to do a lot more explanation there. But this week, I simply want to set the foundation of humility by taking a look at this word abomination, because what we'll see is we'll see that it's way more of a general category than we ever have made it in the church. It's a far more general category. What it's used for throughout the Bible is to describe anything that lends itself towards idolatry or the worship of a false god or a false religious system. In other words, anything that is against the creator God's created order is an abomination. But it's not just for one group or one sin. There is some evidence that confusion of the genders and sexes was a part of pagan worship back in the days of Deuteronomy, that they would use, uh, they would um, basically confuse their genders in the midst of perverse forms of sexual worship. And we don't know this for sure, but what we do know is the fact that it is called an abomination, and that puts it in a category where it's outside God's design and his desire for mankind. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. I know you're super looking forward to it. But we should not dismiss the fact that it is called this. But before we get too high on our horse of singling out this law amongst others and saying that any one sin is more harsh than another, let's do a quick survey of what else Scripture calls an abomination. First of all, idolatry itself is called an abomination. This is Deuteronomy 7.26. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Basic idolatry. Anytime we lift something over and above Yahweh or Jesus Christ, we are committing an abomination. Deuteronomy 12.31 speaks of worship practices that are abhorrent to God because they go against his nature. Uh, we read this a while back. You shall not worship the Lord your God, meaning Yahweh, in that way. For every abominable, 
abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So idolatry, worship of idolatry, and so far, many of us as Christians are like, yeah, right on, abomination. We totally agree. That's good. But then we also see this idea of an abomination in much that is contrary to the heart of God itself that a lot more of us will fall into. This is from Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are, that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. When you look at the Christian church and you see how much division is in the church across the world, I wonder if God is sitting there and asking the question, do they know that that's an abomination to me? Do they know that I hold that with just as much abhorrence as some of these other things that are called abominations? This is in Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Injustice in our judgments is seen as an abomination. How about this one? I don't hear this one preached as an abomination as often in the midst of conservative churches. Ezekiel 22.11, one commits abomination with his neighbor's wife, meaning adultery, heterosexual, sexual sin. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. This is an abomination to the Lord. So the reality is, is rather than singling out any one sexual sin, we should really be saying any sexual sin outside of God's created order it is an abomination. And we should level the playing field a whole lot more than we have in the past as conservative Christians. Well, then in the New Testament, Jesus uses the word to describe anyone who chooses to serve their material wealth and their prosperity over and above God's kingdom. He says this in Luke 16, 15. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men, meaning riches and prosperity and wealth and success, he says, is an abomination in the sight of God. So what we see is that anything that goes against God's desire for mankind and his created order is considered an abomination. It should not be reserved for any one sin or group of people any more than it should be used to describe anything that falls outside of God's created order. Now, why this is so helpful for us is it levels the playing field and reminds us of our purpose. We are set apart to care for the other. And sometimes the other might seem stuck in a lifestyle that has them extremely far from God. But rather than sitting in judgment of them, we must ask ourselves what we can do to lift them up. A dear friend of mine that works in outreach in another local church was telling me the story of an event they had, an outreach event. And a number of the people that came from their church were some of the older, far more staunch conservative Christians. Um, and they showed up and things were going great. And then this gigantic man, this beast of a man, huge guy, six foot four, six foot five, huge Adam's apple, he walks in. But the problem is, is he's dressed in women's clothing, very done up, makeup, everything else, very deep voice, right? And she thought to herself, oh no. What's going to happen? And she had in her mind, she had prejudged the conservative Christians and thought, man, they're going to go over and they're going to avoid this person or they might do harm to this person. But she said she was convicted and she was so excited when she watched them go over and speak to this man and love him and care for him 
ask him what pronoun he would like used to describe him. And they were in it, man. They were working it. And they created this amazing relationship. And that person then started attending their church. And the relationship and the journey was begun where this person who was confused in the midst of what their gender identity was could start working it out in the midst of safe relationships that weren't condemning but were willing to give room for eventual repentance. Dear church, the key to being these kind of ministers of the gospel is that we cannot look at any one group of people and consider them farther from the love of God than we once were. We can't look at that person over there and say, well, they're closer to God, and that person over there and say, well, they're farther away depending upon their sin. Whether we know it or not, we each are engaged in the midst of a world and a society that is changing very quickly. What was unthinkable 30 years ago is now changing in society at a rate that few can comprehend. We might be tempted to curl up and let the culture run quickly past us or shelter our children and say, at least we can isolate them. But to do so would be to dismiss the calling that God has placed upon his church to be a witness of his goodness, to be a priesthood of believers sent to proclaim his good news to a hurting world. And the reality is that we all at one time or another, we were each an abomination to the one true holy God. By our very nature of rebellion against the good creator God and by the sin nature that, that was within us, we were contrary to him and thus you and I were an abomination. And over the years, the church has made that phrase an abomination synonymous with unforgivable, unrestorable, unlovable, and we've passed it out far beyond the boundaries of sexual ethics into other things. Oh, well, that person, they, well, they went to prison, so they must be too far from God. Oh, that person, they're an atheist. They must be too far from God. Oh, that person, well, you know, they believe in science rather than theology, so therefore, they're too far from God. Oh, they're an evolutionist. Mm, they must be pretty far from God. We've made it synonymous with unlovable, unforgivable, unrestorable. For those in many different de demographics, this has largely cut off the church's ability to speak with them and to them. And while our call to a Christian sexual ethic and our call to gender contentment, as God has made us, should always be present, and we should stand for it unapologetically, that should also in no way keep us from humbling ourselves to anyone and everyone that we cross paths with so that we might let them know that God loves them and is calling them to be his own, no matter how long that journey might take. And furthermore, we need to let them know that we desire to walk with them through the process of sanctification that every one of us, not just some of us, has had to undergo as we bring our lives into submission to Christ. You know, dealing with the idea of the sexual ethic, and I'll probably talk about this more next week, any time I run into someone who finds out that I'm a Christian and they want to debate me in the area of sexual ethics, I always start with my testimony. Hey, let me tell you how my brain was broken a bit in the area of sexuality. Let me walk you through my story of how God did not view my sin as keeping me super far from him, and he loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. And that opens a huge door when you have that humility. The context of Israel was that they were a people stuck in idolatry. They were a people given over to becoming part of the culture that they were surrounded by. But God was calling them to something different. 
He was delivering them out of that context and background so that they could proclaim the wonderful mercy and salvation of the God that saved them from the kingdom that they were enslaved to. Dear brothers and sisters, we gather on Sunday mornings to give praise to Jesus because we know that you and I were once abominations, completely contrary to God's created order. Maybe not in our sexual ideal, maybe so, but definitely in the fact that we were rebellious against him because we wanted to be king and we did not want him to be. Even if we were born into the church, our innate nature was that of brokenness. And yet, in spite of all that, the gospel message met us where we were at and called us out of being abominations into being the holy children of a holy and just God. The Bible says clearly that God sent forth his son not to condemn the world, but through him that the world might be saved. You guys know this verse. This is John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, the world has the, the word of God standing in front of it and they know that their sin is condemned. But Jesus came to point out the fact that God's primary purpose is not condemnation. People choose condemnation when they ignore the love and grace of the Son. But his primary purpose was to save us from being those abominations, to walk in the light of his kingdom. In Matthew 9, Jesus shows us the model that he used, that he engaged the most looked down upon in the society of the day, the unlovable, the supposedly unsavable. Look at Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 10, as he responds to the religious leaders of the day. It says there in Matthew 9, 10, that as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The church is to be the body of Christ, operating in the world as Christ did. We are to be those that will reach out to those that are far from God. And we must be able to tell them the truth of how we too were once lost, but now have been found. We need to be able to speak as Paul did in our reading uh, that was given earlier in 1 Timothy. Let's take a look at that. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of, who I, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I 
and of whom you are the foremost. And he did it so that those that are far from God might know his amazing grace. Church, how do we lift up those people around us that are trapped under the burdens of sexual sin, of broken relationships, of abuse, of mistakes that they've made, of ways in which their brain might not be acting in a healthy way? How do we lift them up? We give them the good news that nothing can keep us from the love of Christ. And it all begins with being a purposeful people that through our basic care for the other as a human being, we show the kindness of Christ that draws men and women to repentance. As we go into more about the sexual ethic next week, we have to establish first this foundation of humility, that it is not about us and them. It is about Christ and his desire to love the unlovable. You and I were once those people. Our job is to go out and through the kindness of Christ show that they too can know what it is to have this wonderful adoptive Father God that draws them into repentance. Right now, I want you to think of one person, just as I did earlier, one person who you think is farthest from Christ in your life. Possibly the person that is most distant from the life of a believer. Maybe it's an uncle who has sworn that he would never accept Christ. Maybe it's a person who you know is struggling with their sexual identity or their sexual lifestyle. Maybe it's a person who you know who's committed a crime and you feel like, man, they are walking farther and faster from Jesus than ever before. And I want you to commit to praying for them this week. I want you to think of that person right now. I want you to write down their name in your notes. And I want you to commit to praying for them this week. Pray that through you, they might know the love of Christ and the desire he has for them to become part of his church. Pray that whether or not they've branded themselves an abomination to a holy God, that he would be able to speak through that barrier and draw them in repentance. Pray that God might break their heart so that you might be able to be there to minister to them, to care for them and to lift them up from under the burden that they are carrying. Pray that you might be that chosen people that can stand as a priesthood in the midst of brokenness. When we recognize our mission and purpose to be the personification of Christ to the world, all the paradoxes of Scripture melt away under the truth that God has come to save sinners. We can look at this and we can break it down as we have today and see that we are still in an attempt to be that separate people keeping the law of not sewing together two types of cloth. But we can also look at that and realize that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this section that just seems like random various laws that were given for no reason, we can also realize that what God was trying to do was to create a people that have a mission and a purpose to be his heart to the world. And if we do that, if we understand that, and we understand that's what it's speaking to us, then we can take the message of saving sinners to a world that needs to hear it. This church is not only this church in here, we are this church as we spread out into our neighborhoods and places of work with people asking question after question of whether or not they can be loved and whether or not they are worthy of care. Our job is to go and answer a resounding yes.
And then as the door opens to speak to them the truth and fullness that they have a God and a King who loves them and has called them to repentance.